Hello and welcome to Deep Roots, conversations about theology and ministry. My name is Christy Mayer, I'm one of the, the lecturers here at Oak Hill College and today I'm joined by... Tim Ward, I'm also one of the lecturers here. Hi Christy. We're also joined by our greatly esteemed colleague, Dr Matt Bingham. Hello Matt, how are you Hello doing? Christy, hello Tim, great to be here together today. Hello Matt, remind us of what you teach. I know obviously, but it yeah, is. Yeah, uh, I teach systematic theology and church history. Nice. And there are many things that we would love to ask you about, but we're going to be focusing on one area today. And that is we're going to be looking at the topic of early modern Puritan prayer, because, Matt, you have just written a book all about Puritan spirituality. And I hear that you have quite a juicy chapter on prayer itself. Yeah, that's that's right, Christy. So that's that's my kind of current project: early modern Puritan uh, spirituality, spiritual formation, and um, yeah, prayer is a significant part of that, and a and a significant part of the book. Um, and it was a significant uh, aspect of Puritan piety, Puritan devotion. Um, the uh, John Owen, who some would say is the greatest mm-hmm. of the Puritan divines or theologians, he said that um, he said all will readily acknowledge that uh, as without it, without prayer, he says there can be no religion at all. So the life and exercise of all religion doth principally consist therein. Mm-hmm. So no prayer, uh, no religion. The life and exercise of all religion is tied up with prayer. That's strong. I mean, for those who aren't uh, watching by just listening, Matt was reading that quote from a piece of paper in front of him. I'm just slightly disappointed you haven't got that memorised, Matt. But you know, a, <laughs> Give it time. There's a way to go. For those who, uh, I mean, obviously some people watching and listening will be kind of all over the Puritans. We've used the phrase already, early modern. Mm. Just locate for us, for those who need some help on just when in history are we talking and where? Yeah, right. Thanks. So, um, you know, historians are always arguing over uh, periodization. How do you divide history up into different periods so that you can kind of get a handle on what's going on in a sort of shorthand so we can identify where we're at? And so if we think big, big three, you know, ancient, uh, medieval or Middle Ages and then modern. And so the modern era runs from, again, people argue over it, but, you know, say 1500 to the present. And so the early modern period then would be the the front end of that, say 1500 to 1700. Some people say 1500 to 1800. But for our purposes, if we're talking about Puritans, uh, we're really looking at um, late 16th century and then especially in the 17th century, the 1600s in England and in North America. That is very exciting. I feel like I've just learned a lot in that past kind of minute or so. Thanks so much, Matt. Because I think that kind of takes us on to the the next question of just thinking a little bit about the Puritans mm. and considering that they are early modern, what on earth do they have to teach us, you know, about prayer? Like, why should we even care about them? I mean, you've already read that that lovely extract, but, you know, I'm just wondering why, why them and not, mm. as you've mentioned, some of the medieval kind of writers or even earlier than that has been passed on like through church traditions. Why, why, why the Puritans? Why are you so passionate about them? And why should we care about what they have to say when it comes to prayer? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a good question. And, you know, I find, so I teach um, a lot of the church history modules here and I find that I'm always sort of commending voices from the past and sometimes when you're constantly commending voices from the past, especially from one period, like, oh, this Puritan says this and that Puritan said that, you do have to remind folks, you know, um, yeah, I'm quoting these people a lot, but I, I'm, I'm not want to convey that everything they said was right or just because they said it 
it's right. Ultimately, we want to uh, we want to root our ideas, our theology about prayer, whatever else in Scripture. Uh, but in the case of the Puritans, it seems to me, as it, as it seemed to many, that um, they had a deeply biblical way of thinking about life, about the Christian life, about who God is, about who we are. And they really left behind an incredibly rich collection of devotional writings. Um, so they're, you know, again, Puritanism gets going in the, in the late uh, 1500s, but then in the 1600s is where a lot of the most well-known sort of Puritan authors are, are operating. And so if you think about that, that's kind of after the Reformation has been going a, a bit. And you have people who are really reflecting deeply on, okay, we have this Reformation theology, we have justification by faith alone, we have the, the solas of the Reformation. Um, what does this look like for the spiritual life? What does it look like for mm. growth? Mm. You know, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that in a way that's consistent with this Reformation theology that we are, uh, we've embraced? And so I find them really helpful. Um, they just wrote a tremendous amount, and I suppose ultimately as well, um, it's you know C.S. Lewis talked about the need to have old books, the breeze of the centuries blowing through, um, and part of his reasoning there is just that you know each cultural moment has its own blind spots and its own uh, you know things that gets really right, things that it doesn't. And so when we enter into this world of early modern Puritan spirituality, I think sometimes we just see people who come at issues, come at problems from a different angle than we're coming at them. And sometimes they can highlight things for us that we might not have been attuned to. Well, let's, okay, let's get into it. For what are the Puritan distinctives around what prayer actually is? Mm, yeah, what, uh, what is prayer? It's interesting. So when I was working on this section, actually, that was, that was one of the, the, first, the first questions. And I think we... We take it for granted, don't we? Because we, um, you know, I think if you're a Christian person, you know, prayer is important to you. We hope the Bible's full of references to it. We talk about it. We, we, we pray in our services. We encourage people to pray at home. But what actually are we doing when we, when we talk about prayer? What does that entail? Um, and what I found, you know, with, with the Puritan authors, when they define prayer, they seem... Um, most often, they'll elaborate on this, but most often they, they come back around to some basic variation on prayer is talking to God. Prayer is, is talking with God. So one um, of the earliest uh, sort of English Reformation writers on this, on this subject in the 16th century, he, he published a, a catechism in 1548. So this is before the Puritans, but they would have been on board with this. He defined prayer as uh, an earnest talk with God. Prayer is an earnest talk with God. And there's a simplicity to that, but it makes sense, doesn't it? If God is personal, if God is the God who hears the prayers of his people, the cries of his people, um, then, yeah, we, we are. We're talking to him. It's a conversation. We're, we're telling him. We're pouring out our heart, our desires, our thanksgiving, our praise. Um, and for them, they would have you know, situated this in terms of, look, God has spoken in his word. We are hearing him. We're thinking about what we're hearing, and then we're responding back uh, in prayer. And that that sense of earnestness that that you just mentioned what what do they what do they mean by that? Because you know when I hear hear the word earnest, all sorts of things kind of come to mind. What what are they kind of putting their finger on there? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I think when they talk, they'll they'll talk often about earnest prayer, heartfelt prayer, prayer from the heart. That's really important to them, and in in part, I think they are. Again, they're, they're reacting 
um, against a you know sort of medieval backdrop in which they have perceived a real emphasis on on prayers that are not heartfelt or earnest. Mm. That's the perception, right? So they were sensitive to the idea that you would uh, engage in uh, you know vain repetition. Mm. Think of Jesus' words. Um, in, in Matthew's gospel, you know, don't pray in, in this vain, repetitive way. And so they're very sensitive to that because that's what they see in the medieval sort of Catholic background. They see prayers repeated often um, for some sort of effect. And so they really stress this idea that, no, if you're going to pray, it's personal, it's conversation with God, it's heartfelt. You, you need to mean it. It just just as though you know, if you and I were having a chat and I was just sort of repeating some set formula, I might be doing something, but it's not a genuine conversation. It's not an interaction. And so they were very sensitive to that. There's a Puritan um, Thomas Watson. He told a story uh, about a man who taught his his bird, his parrot, or something to to say the Lord's prayer. <laughs> and uh, wow. he he talked about this man, and he concluded that this shows that um, to say a prayer is not to pray. Don't know what you make of that. Uh, depends what your theology of animals is. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have an avian theology? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, it's, uh, it's interesting you picked up on the word earnest because, yeah, um, it may be that uh, we, you know, nowadays we might hear the word earnest and think serious, unsmiling. Joyless, and in some circles, the Puritans have the reputation of being exactly that. You know, these are these are this is the no fun crowd. Mm. If you want to laugh, don't go out for the night with the Puritans. Is the reputation, but it sounds like for you, when they're using words like earnest, what they really mean is heartfelt. Is mm. that right? Mm-hmm. Can you just expand mm-hmm. that out for us? What what's what's going on in that for them? What is this the wrong question? If, if I showed up at a Puritan church prayer meeting. Mm. What you know? What, what would you expect? What's go, what's going to hit me? How how might that be different from the local church? Excellent local church prayer meeting I go to. Yeah, it's interesting. And so I mean, Puritans do have this reputation as these kind of dour, sour kind of folks, um, and I, I think it is true. They were very serious about God and the things of God, but that doesn't mean they lacked emotion and warmth, and you know, far from it. I mean, one of their big things, uh, one of their key emphasis is. Um, they want to move away from religion that they see as going through the motions, as as rooted in in habit or uh, you know tradition. Tradition understood as I'm doing it just because it's tradition. We might say mere tradition or bare tradition. They want to move away from that, and they want to move toward a religion that is marked by godly affections. So when they talk about prayer, you'll often see whether you're looking at their journals or. Uh, treatises they wrote, there's often talk about prayer with, with sighs and groans mm-hmm. and tears. Um, there's often this sense of, of pleading with God. Um, call it whatever you want, but, but dry, it, it, it isn't. And that's a different. I think they were serious about this, but that doesn't mean they were, you know, sour-faced. Mm. So they're really trying to kind of rehabilitate this kind of sense of what does it mean to enjoy God in our in our prayer life through that joyful communication often with words you mentioned conversation with with God um is that an important piece of this as well that this is a like what does conversation mean to to a Puritan as Mm. they're 
speaking to with God? Yeah, that that is that is interesting. Um, this idea of conversation with God, um, you know, Calvin uses the same language. He talked about prayer as to enter into a conversation with God. Mm. You know, John Calvin. So now we're talking about uh, 16th century reformer earlier in Geneva, not in England, but it, this is the reformed tradition in which the Puritans were taking part. So they would have been looking to him. And he, he, he talks about prayer. He says it's entering into a conversation with God, a conversation whereby we expound to him our desires, our joys, our sighs, in a word, all the thoughts of our hearts. And so I think for them, they're, you know, they're working from this point of uh, a, a personal God who hears. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, one author talks about how it's, it's in Scripture, it's characteristic of God to hear prayer. That's one of the things that God, that makes God, he's the God who hears the prayers of his people early in Genesis after the fall. You know, then people began to what? To cry out mm-hmm. to the Lord. Um, and so, you know, you see in that thing by Calvin there, it's just it's pouring out your heart. So it, it's, it's a, it, for them, it's a conversation in, in the sense that it's comprehensive. It's not just narrowly defined about, okay, I'm going to say these sort of religious formulas and then I've done my duty. Uh, you wouldn't treat a real relationship like that, and you wouldn't treat your your life with God in that way. Um, and then the other part of conversation, of course, is it's it's two ways. Okay, yeah, we're done. Yeah, 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 do it. Go on. No, exactly. Because interesting that quote from Calvin. He said his conversation with God, but then he what he went on to say sounded rather like my monologue to God. Mm, mm. And I mean, it would often be said of prayer. You know, in, in many good churches, if you want a one-liner on prayer, it would be, God, speak, God speaks to us in Scripture, we speak back to him in prayer. Mm. It sounds like there's more going on in the Puritans than that, that actually in the praying, it's not just me talking to God, pleading his promises with him. It's absolutely that. But there's more going on. There's a, there is a listening to God in praying. Is that right? Is that going on in Puritan prayer spirituality? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that makes this area interesting and sometimes kind of tricky is that the way they talk about, um, you, you mentioned reading the Bible, so they'll talk about reading the Bible, and, and yeah, you are, you know, the, the, the primary place where we hear God speak, we hear God speak in his, in his word, so they're going to, that's God's sort of yep. chief yep. means, and so uh, we're hearing him in his word, uh, then they're going to talk about prayer, where we're responding back to him. Um, but you said, is there something more? Um, and just another definition from a Puritan. William Bridge defines prayer as the, that act and work of the soul, whereby a man doth converse with God. So there you have that converse conversation language. But I think it's, he talks about that work of the soul. So what's, what's going on? And um, they have a, a third element. They've got... Um, hearing from God in his word, our words back to him in prayer, but then they have this third element, meditation. You know, this is a big issue for them as well. And the way they talk about these three, meditation, prayer, scripture intake, uh, they talk about them almost sometimes interchangeably. Like they'll almost talk about them as though these three things, though distinct and distinguishable, uh, are kind of three elements of the same thing, namely communion with God, the work of the soul. Um, relating to him Hmm. and i think there's a lot of leeway in there then to kind of enter in imaginatively to say okay what does that look like to do that work of the soul and and so yeah i think it's more than if we're imagining a sort of rote 
I say this, I read, you know, there is that kind of sense of back and forth and engaging and um, wrestling with God in, in, in prayer and meditation and the scripture. I was just, I was just really struck by what you, the phrase that you used to describe that as communion, as a communion of the soul or with the soul. What, what does that mean? Because I think in my mind, so I th- and before we kind of recorded this podcast, we were chatting about some of the backdrop um, mm. that the Puritans are writing um, against in terms of particular mystical strands and threads. So when I hear communion of the soul or with the soul, you know, with, with God, you know, there might be particular kind of mystic authors who use that kind of language. So I'm just wondering kind of what, what would you say is the, what's the distinction here with, with the Puritans when they use the language of communion of the soul with God? I can't remember what the, uh, what the word was, but what, what do they mean by that? And how do they distinguish themselves from, from the mystics? If, if that was their purpose partly mm. as well. Uh, oh, so much to ask. Sorry. Lots of questions there, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we talk that. about yeah, communion <laughs> with God. He, he's the historian. The <laughs> he can handle us. It's all good. Um, and the work of the soul and communion with God, mm. the work of the soul. What are we talking about? Um, yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, you mentioned the mystics, uh, mystical theology, this sort of thing. And that, that can be a tricky term because um, people use it in different ways. It's, it's quite broad. Uh, people try to pin down what do they mean. There's been a lot of work that has identified a mystical strain within Puritanism. Mm. And uh, again, depending on what you mean by mystical, you can, you can certainly find that. Again, they're very warm, very experiential, or they might say experimental, um, you know, sort of Christians. They're, they're very active. Um, there's uh, one story recorded of um, a woman who, after her death, her husband records finding in her little bureau, her nightstand, this piece of paper, and he found it, and on it she had written out, you know, Bible verses, and he just makes the observation that the paper was so worn through constant use that it was almost falling apart. And he says these were verses she turned to when she was facing times of difficulty or temptation or trial. And uh, t- to me, that image of that paper, almost worn out by, by use, is, a, is a, a symbol, it's an image, isn't it, of, of the way they approached the spiritual life generally, prayer. It was active. It was, it was as Bridge says, the work of the soul. Now, you talk mystics and mysticism. I think one thing where we, where we can see um, a different emphasis is, at least in some mystical theology, certainly, there is a sense that um, sort of you have different levels of communion with God, different levels of spiritual experience, right? And often these are divided into, often it's three levels, sometimes other numbers, but, you know, three levels, distinguishable, and there's this idea of a progression. Mm. And so if you're uh, better, if you're, if you're a spiritual adept, if you've, if you've really gone deep into this, you will advance and you'll get to more and more sort of significant kind of realms of, of spiritual engagement. And I think the, the Puritans, um, Reformed theology generally, you know, has, has always wanted to resist this idea of, of a two-stage Christian life or a three-stage Christian life. Um, you have an idea of a progression, in a growth in grace, growing the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, progressive sanctification, moving towards the goal, becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. That is there. But the idea there'd be discrete stages and that you'd want to move from stage one to stage two, that is something that you, I, you know, they're going to resist. 
And specifically to our, our chat here, you know, we talk about prayer as conversation with God. And that implies words. It implies words and it implies thoughtful words. And there is a strain, at least in some mystic authors, where those later stages, where you want to get to, where if you're really good, you'll get to, they sort of are, are moving beyond, you know, mere, in quotes, mere words towards some sort of um, wordless communion with God. And I think that way of framing it would have made um, the, uh, these authors very uncomfortable because they would say, well, we, we, you know, they had a very deeply word-based piety. You know, it's a spirituality very much of the word, by the word. And so any kind, any time, any kind of rhetoric that says somehow words are a starting point, but you move beyond them, I think that would make them very uncomfortable. I can't think of a way of asking it. Here's what I want to ask, and it's I can't think of a more sophisticated way of asking mm. it. Just take that line I mentioned a moment ago. I think I've heard a lot. I use it myself, and the sense is significantly true. God speaks to us in Scripture. We speak back to Him in prayer. If that's basically all someone works with, moments of silence in prayer, moments of meditation contemplation waiting on the lord those those kinds of things are probably not going to get a place and might be thought to be mm, oh, i'm not sure some people like me should be doing that i'll, I'll leave that to other kinds of people mm. sounds like the puritans are not going to be entirely comfortable with that they, they are having these moments in prayer where they are doing something that they call conversation mm. they might would i mean they they might not have called it waiting on the Lord. But there, something like that is going on, isn't it, from what you're describing? Um, yeah, I mean, so, so I think they would say that the, you know, the way you get from, I'm reading this verse in the Bible, and the way you get to a prayer that's not empty, hollow, vain repetition yeah. is through this intermediate step called meditation. Okay. This other thing called meditation, which is one of these places where, again, I think... You know, at least in the in the evangelical circles I grew up in, I, I did hear a lot about the need to read your Bible, and I heard a lot about the need to pray, and that's good. Um, but I didn't hear much about about meditation, which is which is a, again that has all sorts of connotations in our own day and all sorts of meanings. In but the Puritans used it; they used it a lot, and they thought it was really important. And in a sense, I think it was the the thing you're you're talking about. How how do you how do you move from kind of a bare okay, I'm reading these words. Now I'm sort of, you know, spitting them back in this sort of automatic way. Uh, the way that becomes not just automatic, but actually real communion with God is through meditation, which they very much saw as the thing that kind of works uh, the promises of God, the things of God, works them into the heart, works them into the soul, so that they um, well up in some sort of real, authentic, godly affection. And so it, it, that, that meditation, in a sense, bridges... I'm taking in God's words. I'm going to speak back to God in, in my words in prayer. But this this is the bridge between them that makes it authentic, that makes it real, so that you're not just Thomas Watson's friend's parrot who can just, you know, memorize a set form and spit it back. So so what is going on then in, in meditation in order to, you know, kind of work it into the, the soul? Like how, when I'm reading my Bible, for example, and... Um, I want to, I'm talking to God, what, what would I, 
what 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 does it look like for me to do exactly what you've just described when mm. I'm praying? How do I, how, oh, sorry, when I'm meditating, mm. how do I do what you've just described? Yeah, well, I think a lot of it was um, taking what you're reading in scripture and and applying it to yourself and thinking through the implications for yourself and your life and your soul. Um, you know, so it's 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 pausing, it's pondering. Um, you know, uh, the psalmist says, I, I, I waited on the Lord and you, and you heard my cry. Um, and you answered me. And it's, it's pausing there and it's sitting in that. And it's not just necessarily rushing on. It's saying, okay, well, what is waiting on the Lord? What does it mean to wait on, on the Lord? Um, oh, you know, D David doesn't say how long he waited. He might have waited a really long time. I've been waiting a really long time. He waited. I'm waiting. But the Lord does answer. He's the God who answers prayer. We can see it here. He'll answer my prayer. And then all of a sudden you're giving thanks to God. Thank you, God, for being the God who answers prayer. Uh, you know, how long must I wait? I don't know, but it's in your hand. You know, the, you're, you're, you're working, you know, you're working this stuff into, into your heart. And that is broadly what they called meditation. And, and for them, they really just thought that without meditation, your Bible reading, your prayer life um, can very easily fall into kind of something that they might regard as hypocritical or false or or yeah. empty okay this is this is really helpful so meditation is the bridge it's that middle thing between i've read my bible and i'm now going to pray and it's the point at which i kind of i'm what well, i'm asking the lord to i'm taking time for that word to from to what to rub it into my soul to work it into my heart Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. About, just, I'm just kind of flying flesh out what you're saying it'll be those moments when I, I'm asking I've just read this passage I've seen some wonderful truth about him and what I'm now saying Lord will you, will you show me now what, what does this mean in my life what, what are you showing me about what this means mm. I should repent, repent over give thanks for mm, yeah. where I should seek to grow in godliness and that that work has to be done Mm -hmm. Is this right? It has to be done. Yeah. And, and, if, and if it's not done, mm -hmm. if it's, I close my Bible and I pray, even if I'm not parroting a set prayer, mm -hmm. they're coming up with my own prayer. I'm. I might. It might just be words. I might just have got skillful at turning Bible words into f nice sounding prayers. Mm. But I've, the heart work is, is this the territory we're in. I think I think so, and you mentioned you know it has to be done. so. So one of the images they like to use was um, they'd say that you know um, the uh, reading the Bible or hearing the Bible, however you're taking in God's words, um, that's like you know taking in in food. You know you're chewing, but uh, meditation is the digestion. And you know again, you think about that, and you think okay, yeah, if if I just if I just you know took in some food, but I spit it out after chewing on it. And I didn't let it get digested. I'm not going to grow. It's not going to nourish me. It's not going to actually build me up in any way. And so it's uh, that's how they see meditation. Meditation is what takes the takes the food and actually churns it and turns it into uh, new tissue. And so again, that's why if you're not doing it, you're um, you're not growing. You can really see then how focusing on on meditation as digestion just completely um cuts across and 
just beautifully speaks into that that notion of prayer is just rep- vain repetition. It's you're just doing it by rote. But also, I was just thinking that it it also um, um, speaks into the objection of you know when is it Matthew six where Jesus is saying you know don't pray like the pagans who are just babbling and they're using many words because they think that they will be heard by God. There's this. In, a, in, a, in an interesting way, you've also described a threefold stage progression to prayer, which obviously isn't the same as kind of the mystical progression, but there's still this kind of movement to to prayer with the with meditation in the middle. And it, it's it that's that's given me a lot to think about in terms of this isn't babbling. It isn't using lots of words because God will be able to, to hear you regardless. But also it's not vain repetition. It's this digestion of of the word and a reflection upon your your life and your spiritual state. So mm. that when you pray, is this right? So that when you pray, you're praying from a, a position of Lord, help me or Lord, thank you, you know, in the particulars of our lives, not as a kind of an esoteric, here are the things that I have to say Mm. so that I'm a good Christian or so that God will hear me or so that I'm pious in some way. This is an expression of the soul reaching out to God and saying, Lord, hear my cry, see Mm. my state or thank you so much for, for what you've been doing. And that's, that's just, that's just really beautiful because I think I don't know if, if you're like this as, as well, Tim. Often when I've heard the Puritans, I have thought dour and sour. But also, you know, you hear... You need of, to spend more time with Matt. I do. I genuinely really do. do. But also like Richard Sibbs and others, you know, like oh, a honey yeah. preacher. And, oh, you know, yeah. you just think, wow, how do, how do these two, two visions, two different pictures of of the Puritans emerge when you've got people like Sibbs and Owens and, and then you've got this picture of the dourness it's good it's great to recover it it's yeah. great to recover it let's 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 put contemporary evangelical spirituality in light of this now clearly it, it's contemporary evangelical spiritualities plural you know there's there's a real breadth here but just you know in your own upbringing as christians and how you you've been influenced and how people have helped you has something like this meditation been in the air for you is this significantly lost? Mm. Do you think for us? What do you reckon? I mean, I I think actually. So I mentioned I didn't hear a lot about this in in my mm. circles growing up, and I didn't. But I I suspect that when people were commending Bible reading and prayer, um, I suspect that a lot of them, most of them perhaps, were actually doing something a lot like what the Puritans were commending with meditation. I think that that probably was happening. I think there's a sense in which what we're describing when we describe meditation is just the way uh, a, a thoughtful um, you know, Christian person engages with Scripture. And you, know, you read, um, you know, Jesus says that uh, not a sparrow is going to fall apart from the will of your Father. And if you're really reading that and you're thinking about it and you're not just doing it to tick a a box that I read my verse for the day, if you're really reading that and thinking about it, you're, you're going to start to to do what the Puritans identified as meditation. You're going to think about um, what that means for me. You're going to think about the things I'm worrying about right now, and you're going to think, you know, I'm really anxious about this, but but actually Jesus is telling me that I'm worth more than many sparrows, and you're going to start to work that into your heart, and it's going to then lead you to uh, an authentic, heartfelt prayer that's not a mere vain repetition. And so I suspect that this... This does go on, but I think there's value in the way the Puritans draw it out, name it explicitly, mm. and identify the lack of this meditation 
as a you know common cause for for spiritual dryness and and lack of sort of growth and um, lack of a, a sense of vitality in one's uh, prayer life and one's spiritual life. Mm. It's definitely not spoken about, is it? Or at least I've never heard a sermon or a a seminar or a, or a conversation in which meditation has taken center center stage as an important piece of our our prayer lives often I think it's been what you've mentioned Tim is the you know you 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 hear from God in the word and then you turn it back to to him in prayer it's almost like an automatic mm-hmm. response you mm-hmm. literally just pray the words that that you've you've just read um, but also I'm an immigrant and I come from a Pentecostal background so this so this whole piece in terms of um, meditation is is very is very common to me in terms of my my own background from central from central Europe. Yeah. But I think it has been interesting coming over to the UK and hearing how in you know I've been in Pentecostal conservative evangelical churches, charismatic churches, just the ways in which this is spoken about in those three different groups and the and particular things that are emphasized in each church culture and context. And so I think, you know, particularly for the conservative evangelicals, um, this, I, I, you know, as we've been discussing, it does seem to be kind of an overlooked piece because it's almost quite, you're not in control really, are you? If you're, if you're, if you have moments of silence and stillness and where you're so decentered in that you are in, you, we're always in the presence of the Lord, but as we're praying, we're waiting on the Lord to such a degree that as we're reflecting on scripture and as we're allowing the spirit to, to move in our hearts and minds, we aren't expressing in words immediately what it is that God is saying to us. There is that gap, as it were, that can feel quite, I can feel quite frightening, I think, in this, to be still um, and to focus upon the Lord, that there's, there's a, there's a sense there in which I just wonder if, to some degree, that can prevent people from from engaging with it a little bit more than than perhaps you're encouraging us to, Matt, through the through the Puritans. Interesting about that sense of loss of control. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting too. So one of the things, um, so I think clearly the the direction of travel for for Puritan authors, if they're talking about prayer as, as conversation with God at at, at his heart. Um, if they're talking about the need to avoid, you know, vain repetition, and so you want thoughtful words, you want you want prayer that's that's tethered to Scripture, that's that's largely, um, you know, in, in responding to it and and in, in incorporating it into your prayer. It, it does raise the question: Well, what if I I can't pray? Uh, what if I struggle to do that? Um, you know. They often seem, they often do, you know, set a high bar when they're talking about the devotional life mm. of the Christian, and you know, in in part, I think that just reflects the seriousness with which they approach this. In part, I think it reflects the sense that they were trying to often paint the sort of ideal portrait. This is what we're aiming for, you know, very much of the thought that if you don't know what you're aiming at, you're never going to hit it, and so they try to give this sort of often this picture this is this is what we want this is this is godliness um but then i think also if if we're feeling that we need to recognize that they um they were actually very good and very attentive to the questions about what what happens when things go wrong what happens when i feel uh dejected discouraged 
faithless. They, mm. they were actually very surprisingly sensitive to these issues, and they addressed them quite frequently. So, so yes, you can you can find the statements that are very strong and says, you know, a, a Christian will do X, Y, and Z. But then if you read on in that same sermon, say, they'll say, now, when you don't feel that way, here's, here's five remedies. And so sometimes when we just hear the strong quotes, uh, but without the balancing second bit, we can get a distorted picture. Um, so just for example, here's, here's a quotation. I think you mentioned Richard Sibbs, Christy. Here's, here's one from Sibbs in which he, uh, he says that God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. These desires cry louder in his ears than your sins. Sometimes, he says, a Christian has such confused thoughts that he can say nothing, but as a child cries, Oh, Father, not able to express what he needs. And then he says that these stirrings of, a, of spirit touch the heart of God and melt him into compassion towards us when they come from the spirit of adoption and from striving to be better. So, um, again, just note the emphasis on, on, on the heart. You know, a, a, a heart that is inclined toward God, even when it's in a position where the, the person doesn't know what to pray. They, all they can say is, oh, Father, I need help. It, he says, this is, this is not a problem for God. God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. And I think that's the, um, a significant counter balance to, you know, we talk about prayers need to be um, words, thoughtful words. Um, I think they're also going to say, you know what, though, there are times when your prayers aren't going to resemble that, and it's going to be very difficult, and you might not know what to say. And that's okay, too. God understands that. God comes to us and meets us in our weakness. I think the difference, though, between what Sibs is saying there and when I was mentioning some of these mystical authors, is um, Sibs is identifying uh, that moment when, you know, you can't say anything, you don't know what to say, but as a child, you all you can do is cry, oh, Father, not able to express what you need. He's seen that as in, in your moment of weakness, in your moment of difficulty, when you can't express prayer as you would like to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. God is kind, God is gracious to his children, um, as opposed to a scheme that would sort of frame a wordless state as the desirable destination. He's saying, you know, we, we, we try to pray the way we see the psalmist modeling it. We try to pray in this way, present your, your petitions to God. Um, but when that breaks down, because life in a fallen world is hard, uh, your Heavenly Father understands your weakness and he meets you in it. May I ask another question on that? I was just, I think, I don't know. Um, one of the things I think that came to mind hearing you say that is... And one of the questions I think that comes up quite, quite regularly in, in some of the modules I teach is the question around what if someone is unable to speak? So what if there are particular learning differences or you're born with particular, um, um, particular kind of physical difficulties that mean that you're not, you're not able to, to speak. There's some, and um, so what, what do you, well, how does this apply to those who you know have children who who might be um, autistic or have never been able to speak or um, through a really awful accident or some or some other kind of oh you know really bad thing that's befallen them aren't able to express themselves in this kind of word-based way in their prayer lives I think it can sound sometimes and this isn't what you're 
what you're saying, sometimes it can sound like God as it makes a concession to those who are unable to use their words because he is kind. But there is, again, an insertion of a superiority of of words in that whilst words are um, desirable and he's made us to be able to communicate and to be able to um, to use speech in particular ways to, to honour and glorify him and to speak to him and with him, how how would you help someone who who's just like who's hearing this and thinking this is great but my husband has just had an awful accident in the workplace and is no longer able to speak or my child isn't able to has never been been able to learn how to talk um and obviously there are lots of other questions there um in terms of how what does it mean to communicate the gospel and what does it mean to respond in repentance and and belief and to say that Jesus is Lord you know and all of those things just love to hear your reflections on on that mm. yeah it's good, a just, great question it's a yeah it's a good question and yeah I've had these sorts of questions come up as well in, in mm. teaching contexts and in pastoral contexts and especially when so again you know I think the Reformation and Reformed theology and, and the Puritans in, in particular, it, it, it is a, a, a word-centric piety, right? So um, that that is there. So it does raise these questions. And there's other questions as well. Um, but I, I think one helpful thing, a lot of the issue, uh, I think, is addressed when we recognize that to say that um, words are important, thoughtful words are important, that God, is, God has inspired and given us a book that his primary means of revealing himself to his people is through his word, that faith comes by hearing all of these sorts of, you know, Psalm 119. I mean, there's there's all this, Puritans would say they have word-centered piety because they would say scripture promotes a word-centered vision, right? Um, so I think one helpful thing is to distinguish and recognize that to promote a word-centered piety is not to say that the more articulate you are, the more eloquent you are, the more godly you are. And so once we are talking about human beings made in God's image who have this innate capacity for communication and, and language, and I know you mentioned cases where maybe that's so compromised, but we can come to that. But once we mention that in, in the, you know, God's image bearers were, were uh, made to communicate with each other, with God, and language is this, is this marvelous means that, that God has given and then you recognize, okay, that's that's how God is in, engaging with us in this significant way. Um, that is not to then say, if I can put together a better, longer, more complicated, more intricate, more grammatically correct, precise, vivid sentence, I am somehow at the front end of, of spiritual development. Um, the, the key for them was, uh, are you engaging with the promises of God? Are you engaging with who he's revealed himself to be in the scriptures. And um, so again, when we think then about um, the varying capacities that that we all have, um, they would be, in fact, they'd be quick to say the opposite. They would be quick to say, again, in their, in their constant sort of worry about hypocrisy and false religion and, and pharisaical pretense, they would be quick to point out that often some of the people who can sort of, you know, speak, the most words in the most polished, fluid way are actually using that to 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 deceive, and that the 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 plain-hearted or the plain-spoken but heartfelt prayer is is the one that that the Lord hears and honors. Because again, for them, it, it's it's really about the orientation of the heart, mm. 
And uh, so when I think I think that helps to speak into that a, a, a bit. Um, if we were talking about you know the sort of uh, really extreme cases where, where through through accident or or whatever else a, a person was just truly unable to to engage you know in with with human language at, at any sort of level or capacity at that point I think that's a very um, that that's a that's a real theological pastoral challenge but at that point I think that goes to all Christians of of whatever your theological persuasion I mean I think at that point everyone has a deep question to wrestle with, um, Puritans included, but even if you um, didn't quite put the emphasis where they do, you know, you're still dealing with the question of, okay, if God has revealed himself in Scripture and I have a person who can't engage with that, what does that mean pastorally? How do we, how do we address that? He's just a, the very personal thought this made me think about as you were asking the question and then as Matt was responding... As I've gone on over the years as a Christian, I think one reflection on my own praying is that I I have, I guess, learned to be more eloquent. As I've come to know the Lord better and Scripture better, and spent you know more and more time praying with others who are eloquent in prayer, I guess that's had an impact. But as I've got older, you know, and as you get older, you know. You, and you realise there's quite a lot you can't do that when you thought you were going to be changing the world, is I think I spend more time now just praying, Lord, I'm praying that same prayer again that I've brought to you before. You must be tired of hearing it. I think I'm tired of saying it. So I just, Lord, I present this intractable situation to you. And then there is that, the, the, the wordless moment. It's not entirely wordless, mm. but that is the oh father mm. moment when, so I think I'm, I'm now better with words in prayer than I used to be, and I'm also often worse with words than I used to be in prayer in different situations. But probably when I, as it were, present myself to others as a prayer and I'm invited to talk about praying, it's the smoothness and the eloquence that I present and talk about rather than the, yeah, I sat for five minutes and couldn't say anything other than, Lord, I'm just lifting that up to you again and I really don't know what else to say. Mm. I don't know if that feeds... Does that in any way feed into your question? I don't know, maybe it doesn't. I think it does. I think you've both, you know, you've mentioned, you know, this is the orientation of the heart. This isn't about... Know, fine and eloquent um, words. It it is about the heart, isn't it? Because it's not salvation by prayer. That that's 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 essential, I think, to to that question. That prayer is is a gift, and that we are able. And if we're able to speak, that is a gift. And for those whose ability is is compromised, as as you've mentioned, it's not that. God condescends to, to meet them in that, but that he is glorified by their very existence and that they are alive and and that you know there is a deep faith there that even if they aren't able to express that in words, um, God looks at the heart and one day they'll be with him face to face. Um, 
and then there'll be heavenly languages and all sorts of things going on. So, um, yeah, thank you for, for helping us to think about that question. I guess in the last kind of five minutes or so that we have, this kind of moves us on to a little bit into what does this look like a bit more in practice? So how does this help us think about our quiet times? Is there such a thing as a quiet time or the set times? And, um, yeah, how can you help me think about um, tomorrow morning or this evening or in the afternoon when I'm walking on the grounds of Oak Hill and just enjoying all the, you know, the lush greenery, well, changing seasons, the lovely kind of leaves as they're falling. Um, how can I make really enjoy my time um, with Jesus as a result of what you're saying? Mm, yeah, it's great. It's a great question. And that's kind of where it comes out, isn't it? You know, it's, it's um, I mean, I, th- I think a, a couple things. For, first of all, when I read the Puritans and I think about my own prayer life, I am reminded that this is actually really, really important. And that it's not box ticking because, you know, I was told to do this and I need to, to do it. It, it, it. This actually is, to a large extent, what constitutes my relationship and communion with God. Um, again, another quote from Richard Sibbs. He says, take away prayer and take away the life and breath of the soul. He says, take away breath and the man dies. As soon as the soul of a Christian begins to live, he prays. In other words... Sibs is saying to be a Christian is is to be a praying person, a, a, a soul that's a, a, that's alive, uh, a heart that's been um, reborn by your, your new birth, you're a new creation in Christ, and, and that new creation is going to be a praying creation. You're, you're a, a prayer. And they underscore that in a way that encourages me and, and, and helps me to see the significance of it. Um, leads me to want to fight for that a little bit more to, to go out and, and make sure I'm, I'm doing it and not neglecting it. That's one. Um, they also, I think, help me orient my heart around the need for prayer that is, is actually coming out of a place of real need. And again, that, that warning against vain repetition. Uh, it's interesting, they warn against vain repetition. They're, they're sensitive to that. They also are big on this idea of... Um, Re, uh, repeating your prayer of, of, of coming to the Lord again and again and again in, in a sense until he gets until you not not until you get what you want but there are those parables in in the New Testament aren't there your persistence yep yeah and they they stress that and and um, sometimes that those can feel like okay are those intention um, but I, th- I think the key is is the orientation of the heart so you know Tim when you're talking about sometimes I just come and say that Lord, this is the same prayer again. Here it is. Um, I think the why is that not vain repetition? Well, it's not vain repetition because that's actually what is on your heart, and the mm. reason you're bringing it again and again every day is because that continues to to be a real reflection of where you are and and what you need. Um, and your heavenly Father hears you. So those sorts of things help reorientate me around. Um, what am I doing when I pray? It's really important. This is this is your communion with God. This is the life and work of the soul. Um, this is coming from from the heart because it's real communication with a real personal God who's really there. And then thirdly, I think they're helpful. Um, one thing that that they do that I think is helpful. They all, I mean, not all of them, but but a lot of them will distinguish between two kinds of prayer. They'll talk about a sort of set or solemn prayer. And then they'll talk about a, a spontaneous sort of prayer. And they say that the, the Christian life needs both. 
So you need set, solemn times of prayer, what we might call a quiet time, you know, where you're, you're sitting down, um, perhaps by yourself, perhaps with someone else, but you're, you're sitting down and you're taking a moment to say, this is what we're doing now. We're communing with the Lord, um, scripture, meditation, and prayer. And uh, for however long you do it, they, they actually were surprisingly unprescriptive. They, they, they weren't telling you, you must do it in exactly this way for this long, but they said you should do it and you should try to do that every day. Um, but then they said the whole day is full of this spontaneous prayer. A lot of them would connect it to, you know, Paul's exhortation to, to pray without ceasing. Mm. And how do you do that? Well, it's because at each moment you're buoyed along by a real sense of dependence on the Lord. Uh, I'm not my own. And each day I, I go, everything I'm doing, I want it to be for God's glory and in God's strength and not my own. And so I'm going to be praying at different times, in, in short, brief ways, appropriate to the moment. Um, but they said, you need both, and, and you want both. And uh, again, it's one of those things where I think a lot of, of I, think, I suspect most Christians do that naturally, right? But I find sometimes when they spell things out and they make those distinctions, it's a helpful reminder and a helpful encouragement. Mm. Terrific, Matt. Thank you. Christy, what, final thoughts. What is, was any of this sparking off in your mind? Oh, just just what a privilege it is to be able to to pray, and I think just what you were mentioning with that dis- the two, that distinction between the set and the spontaneous. That I just think about praying without ceasing. That's just a lovely way of just describing that spontaneous prayer of the relentlessness of prayer as as we're in God's world, that we're able to respond to Him and to our circumstances and lift up our hearts to Him at, at all points. How about you, mm. Tim? What's on your I. This thing about meditation as the crucial middle term, mm. I think is very, for myself, I think it's very helpful. I suspect you, I think one of you, can't remember who it was, said it earlier. A lot of Christians are probably doing this, even if they've not been taught to do it, mm. even if it's not been articulated for them. I think over the years, I have absolutely grown in doing that. I can't actually remember anybody telling me, maybe people were, and I was just kind of not listening. I'm sure I've read things around it and I had it modelled to me, but I've, I have just found myself doing it. And for me, that's one thing that's meant is in, in the in the set solemn time, the, the quiet time, is often taking shorter portions of scripture, precisely so I have time for that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's just, there is just something simple here in front of me to chew on, to meditate on, be, be, before I turn it into prayer. This is, mm-hmm. this is less, less text to think about. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I, m- I may well end. I may well then chew. So I think what I what this is spurring me on is, yes, that's a good direction. M- m- in my own praying life, more and more, de- thinking of it more deliberately as that crucial middle between reading and, and now I really am starting to pray. Mm. Uh, and then also, that's, that's the most important for myself, in relation to how I talk to prayer to others, huh, this is slightly ironic for me, in the church I'm a member of, um, I've just taught three sessions for our small group leaders, Bible study leaders, on um, on prayer. Mm. And um, I don't think I use the word meditation, and I don't think I particularly talked about this category. You know, I hope what I talked about was good and useful. Mm. But this is spurring me that next time there's this absolutely something to articulate mm. and, and help people think through, because I think I discover lots of Christians are doing this, but because they don't have a name for it mm. and therefore haven't thought it through, there might be a sense of 
should I be doing this? Mm. And a lack of sense of being helped to do it better and more thoughtfully. Uh, we must wrap up. Thank you uh, both so much. This has been Thank terrific. You. Thank you. Um, Matt, you mentioned uh, a book earlier. Now, that's not out yet. It doesn't have a title. So, I mean, Christmas presents this year, it's going to have to wait. It's going to have to wait. Maybe next Christmas. Maybe next Christmas. Mm-hmm. Christmas 2025. Tremendous. 2024. Oak Hill. <laughs> when it's out, Oak Hill's social media, and our key, uh, the, he's, he, he's there, thumbs up. <laughs> Our communications and digital marketing guy is all over social media when your book comes. I mean, big launch, I'd have thought. Big launch. Champagne. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Great. Can you have champagne at a Puritan book launch? Whoa. Well, I think we've established you absolutely... Well, (laughs) you can have a load of fun. Whether you need champagne to have the fun might be a debatable issue. This has been Deep Roots, the podcast brought to you by Oak Hill College. Uh, We trust that have been good blessings for you in this. We look forward to being with you next time.